In the game of life, maintaining a healthy lifestyle and nurturing meaningful connections with family can be among the most formidable challenges we face. I tried to do simple things and my body wasn't responding. And so that's really when I, I started to question, can I get back to me? Yet for many professional athletes, fostering both has proven to be a triumphant recipe for success. There was something that I told her that I haven't delivered on yet, but I still will, is I will make sure you are the highest paid female athlete in sports. I'm John Frankel. For the past two decades, I've traveled the globe covering some of the most impactful human interest stories in sports. On this show, I'm sitting down with some of the biggest families in the game, the legends, current superstars, and the up-and-coming playmakers to understand what's really making them tick. What can pro-athlete families teach a new generation about the importance of caring for your health and finding success in the face of adversity? Together, we'll hear stories of their remarkable comebacks, setbacks, and the crucial role their family and self-care played in their paths to championship glory. This is Heart of the Game. In the pantheon of U.S. track and field superstars, Allison Felix stands alone. Over the course of five consecutive Olympic Games, Felix collected 11 medals, including one bronze, three silver, and seven gold. Felix also dominated the world championships in track and field, winning more medals in those competitions than anyone else ever. Her success on the track has given her a platform to push for change for female athletes. For example, in 2019, she spoke out publicly against her then-sponsored Nike for not providing guaranteed financial protections for pregnant athletes and new moms. They were asking me to tell women and girls that they could do anything. And when we're having this like internal battle. So that was the moment where I was like, you know, we've got to speak on this. We were on the same page, but we were also both really terrified. I think if she would have said, no, I don't want to do it. I think I would have been like, okay, no, I understand. But I'm so glad she was willing to do it. Going public with her concerns, Felix sparked a firestorm of controversy and turned the spotlight on pregnancy discrimination. In just under three weeks, it pushed the sportswear giant to change its contract terms for female athletes. But the track star and Nike would part ways. And as the sun was setting on her athletic career, Felix would have one last race to run. At the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, she would end her historic career by winning the bronze medal in the 400 meters and helping Team USA win the gold in the 4x400-meter relays. That helped her overtake Carl Lewis to become the most decorated American Olympic track and field athlete of all time. And she did it wearing sneakers from her own brand, Seish. The risky move came about after she split from Nike, and her older brother and agent, Wes Felix, had encouraged her to take control of her career. The end of her competitive career marked the beginning of a fresh start, Working together with her brother, Allison Felix is now part activist and entrepreneur with a goal of making sure mom athletes get a fair shake. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Let's go back to the beginning here. Allison, was track always your first love? I wouldn't say it was. Um, I kind of stumbled into it. I loved basketball. That was like my thing. And Wes is two years older than me, so whatever he was doing, I was kind of trying to keep up. But it was very apparent 
quickly that basketball was not my gift. So kept searching and um, <laughs> eventually found track. What was the appeal about track? Where did it kick in for you, no pun intended, that you found this spark? Well, I'm a competitive person. You know, we come from a competitive family and I just love the idea that like on that day you could figure out right away like who was the fastest, nothing subjective about it. And that just really appealed to me. And I always loved racing the boys and kind of all that stuff. So it was the perfect thing for me. Speaking of racing boys, when was the first time you two matched up on a track? <laughs> I think we ever matched up on a track. Like, <laughs> Or was it more informal than that? Yeah, yeah. There's an even better story here, John. That is, when was the first time Allison beat me? We would train a lot when we were both competing and we got to get like good workouts in together. But at the end of each season, we'd go on a vacation and we would do a brother-sister race. And, you know, it started when we were both competing. So I think like my opportunity to win was pretty high. I would have like put your money on me as time went on. I think Allison started to become the favorite and the distance would get shorter, which would give me a chance to hold on a little bit longer. And then it was 2021 coming right off of Tokyo Olympics. We're on the beach and we run. She gets out ahead of me, which kind of expecting. She just came back from the Olympics and I was far, far from that. But I just knew I was going to catch her. You know, I'm just like looking out in front and I'm like, oh, it's just a matter of just, nope, I'm about to make my move. And then I'm like, wait, the move's not happening. And we start getting towards the finish line and realize this isn't happening. She's she's going to beat me. She's going to beat me for real. I didn't let her win. She beat me. And so there's a new person who's been throned fastest in the family in the Felix household. <laughs> Allison, do you remember for real the first time that you were able to catch your older brother and it gave you this realization that you were really, really good? Yeah, I think that was the beauty of it. I never won. You know, he ran track and that literally was the first time I I ever won. So I think that like made me where I wasn't scared to lose and also where I was just like eager for the next challenge, because in my own family, my dad and my brother, like, you know, super competitive. And I literally could not beat them. I mean, he was, you know, a great athlete. But yeah, it it didn't phase me, I think. I, I never expected that I would win every race. Did you have the bond before you both noticed that track was your passion? Or did your competitiveness and your participation in track create the bond that you have today? I would say that we had the bond before. I mean, I think we had a very normal kind of like fighting growing up, like very typical brother, sister. And then I think it, for me, I, I remember like somewhere around like middle school feeling like we're actually on the same team. That was kind of like a turning point. Yeah, I would agree. I think the bond really formed in middle school. But I think what track did was took it even deeper and solidified it. It started to give us real like shared problems almost, you know, and, and the problem being like, you get really nervous before a race. Sometimes you run well, sometimes you don't run well. And how do you deal with disappointment? How do you make sure that you're working really hard? You know, all of those things. So we really started to have a shared goal that just solidified the bond a whole lot more. Given the nature of the bond that you had in developing that at a young age, would you have expected that you would find yourselves here today working as agent client? Was that something you had talked about and envisioned? Wes, I feel like you talked about it. Me, I feel like not so much, but I also not 
totally surprised because even through college, you know, um, starting out was very close. We shared an apartment. And so, yeah, it doesn't totally surprise me. But I feel like, Wes, did you have a master plan? I I feel like you might have. (laughs) (laughs) I think, you know, I don't even know if it was necessarily my master plan. I think it might have been our dad. Our dad knew that I was really interested in sports management. And, you know, when I was in high school, I told him, like, oh, I think I would love to do sports and entertainment law after college. I didn't even really know what that meant. But then got to college and my second year of college, that's when Allison decided that she was going to go pro. And as she was going through that initial first deal, my dad really brought me along and said, I want you to see every part of it. And so I went to the meetings, I sat on the calls, I took notes, I asked questions. Then when a few years later, I said, what if we actually work together and said that to Allison and we took it to our parents? I think I may have thought it was my idea, but I think he might have been maneuvering a few things behind the scenes along the way. Allison, were you receptive right away to this concept? It just came at the perfect time. For me, I was having like some frustrations around like where I was. And I felt like I really needed to focus in on the track part of things. And I needed to be able to trust whoever I was working with to do all the other stuff. And so it was just kind of like, yeah, the perfect timing for us to do this. There are times, Wes, when an agent has to tell a client, a superstar athlete, what to do, what not to do. Has that been difficult along the way? You know, it's really interesting because not so much. With Allison, it's been okay. I've had been fortunate enough to represent a couple of other superstar athletes, and it was really challenging with them. And I almost, you know, in my head, I thought it would have been the flip, the reverse. thought it would have been much harder to tell Allison the hard things, but it wasn't. It was much harder to tell some of the other clients the hard things. And I think I was just a little bit more used to her disappointment process, her frustration process. And I think I was more used to knowing this will just take time. So I knew how to kind of let that be and know that I could say the hard thing and that she knew not only did I love her as a brother, but I wanted what was best for her and and for her career. So it wasn't too, too bad, but it was scary at times, you know, especially at the beginning when you had to say the thing that you knew she didn't want to hear. Allison, do you remember a specific example when Wes may have told you something and you vehemently disagreed with him and you even tried to do it your way and he said, no, just listen to me, trust me on this? I feel like the hardest moments were really around when I was much older, you know, when I was dealing with having a child and with Nike. And I think those were kind of some of the hardest moments of just communicating a lot of things that I felt like very disrespected with. And so it wasn't necessarily that we disagreed, but it was he was delivering information that was really devastating to me. And so that was probably, I feel like, the most challenging kind of phase. There were times when my advice was, we just need to sit tight. And I think that that's really hard, especially if you're at a point where you're out of contract Money's not coming in. You're not sure if money is going to come in. And for the advice to be, trust me, sit tight. Here's what we're doing. And Allison and I would talk a lot about, as an individual athlete, trying to negotiate a deal with a large sports apparel company, you don't have leverage. That company doesn't need you. Their business is still going to work whether you're there or not. And there are very, very few athletes that those companies don't survive without. 
Allison Felix won her first international title at just 16 years old. After graduating from high school, she gave up her college eligibility and signed an endorsement deal with Adidas. Like her big brother, she would attend USC, the University of Southern California. Adidas picked up the tab for her tuition, and Felix would graduate from college with a degree in education. And she kept running. In 2004, at just 18 years old, she would begin an historic Olympic journey with the U.S. track and field team. You compete in five consecutive Olympics, correct? Yes. In the 200 meter, you win silver in 2004, 2008. It's not until London in 2012 that you take gold. Mm -hmm. That seems like a long journey. It was a long journey. <laughs> um, and it was really challenging, I think, also at those particular ages, you know, like my first Olympics, it was it was all good. It was new. You know, I was 18 and I'm so excited and I was disappointed <laughs> getting silver. But, you know, family quickly helps me realize, like, you know, this is great. The second Olympics, that's when it really hit, you know, when everything changed. I was the favorite. You know, I have sponsors and expectations and responsibilities, and I'm navigating still being a young woman and competing professionally while being in school and just all these different things. And when I got that second silver medal, I was devastated. I was embarrassed. Um, I just felt like I'm not sure if this is ever really going to come together. And on that stage, you know, Thinking about committing for another four years with no guarantees, that was challenging. Given that you had so much success in the Olympics overall, you won, I think, 11 medals. Seven mm -hmm. of them are gold. Some are individual, some are team in relays. As the games go on, do the goals change or is gold always the standard? Gold has always been the standard. It's always been very clear cut for me. And I think that's partly what makes it challenging is that I always measured the success like gold or failure. It was after London, I would say, when when everything came together for me, I won the three gold medals and we set a world record. And, you know, it's everything that I always wanted. And it didn't quite measure up to what I thought it was going to feel like. I think I thought everything was going to be different. You know, and I've made it, like, finally checked that box. And I think I had to kind of unpack, like, what that was really about. And I think it was the journey and the process and the failures along the way. That was a turning point for me where I think I started to measure the success differently. Like, I could find bright spots even when everything didn't go perfectly right. And, and that's also, I think, where the point of my career where I found more purpose and, like, trying to create some impact. And it, it just became a little bit bigger than just a sport for me. At the 2013 World Championships in Moscow, Felix was trying to make history to win a fourth consecutive gold at the event. Instead, she endured a devastating injury. You talk about having to wait four years, all the training that goes into something, the disappointment. 2013, you were trying to become the first to take four gold medals in the same event at the World Championships. Mm. You want to take it from there or do you want me to lay it out? <laughs> the gun goes off. You're 50 meters or so into the race, into the turn, and what happens? I feel just a popping in my hamstring. I think that was probably my first major injury. 
I crumbled to the track and I remember just kind of looking up and seeing the race happen without me. Before I even got to the track or out there, you know, my coach was saying like, I think something special is going to happen. Like I felt primed to like do something really great. And so to come falling to the track. And Allison Felix has fallen. That was not something I was familiar with at all. And it was, um, yeah, it was a, it was a tough moment. Take me into the mind of an elite athlete while you're sitting there on the track for that time. You're bummed, maybe angry, but can you really allow yourself to express your emotions because you know the cameras are on you? Yeah, I think in that moment, I was definitely showing the emotion. And I remember there's this moment, like, you get hurt on the track. And my thing is, like, how how do you get off? Like, I've never been in this position before. Like, how am I going to get out of here? And I'm in Russia, and there's a language barrier with the people who come running over to me. They bring, like, a stretcher, and they can't figure out how to get it up. And I remember just being like, I just want to get off of here. And the next time I lifted my head, somehow Wes managed to get down on the track. And out of nowhere, I'm like, how did you do this? But he literally just picked me up and carried me off the track. And I think that symbolizes our relationship. It's just like, you know, he's there when I need him. But that was a really, yeah, the first really big injury. And um, and we kind of went through it together. That's her brother, Wes and her training partner, Jenna Batarmo, who are taking her off the track. She will not leave here in a stretcher. She'll leave instead in the arms of her brother. Wes, what do you remember? What was your initial thought? And how did you get to the stretcher to lift your sister up? You know, I remember just Allison being on the cusp of history with this fourth consecutive world championship. So I'm sitting there with my parents in the stands and she got a good start, which that doesn't happen all the time, which I think, you know, maybe also led to the injury of how much force she was really putting on. And there were a couple steps before the actual injury where you could just see something was off. And so noticing that my dad and I kind of looked at each other and then before we know it, she's down on the track. And so in that moment, it wasn't an agent, it was a brother who knew that not so much even, oh, she's going to be so disappointed, but but she's hurt, you know, and how do I get to her because she's hurt? And I remember looking at my dad and I said, I'll go down there. And he just said, okay. And I think there was something in the way he said, okay, that didn't make it sound crazy. So I get down to the security guard and it's, as Allison mentioned, in Russia. And, and really, I just said to him somehow in a way that he understood probably in the like pain in my face, you know, that's my sister. I have to get to her. And it was pretty easy. He just moved to the side and I hopped over the railing and jumped down there. And once I was on the track, I think they knew me enough that I wasn't, you know, a streaker or something. So they, um, they let me be there and I could see in Allison's face, just this deep, deep hurt. This was a moment she just wanted to hide. And she needed to process the feelings and emotions on her own, you know, and they're trying to get her off the track and it's not working. And so I asked her, you know, do you want me to pick you up? And she said yes and and then carried her off. When we return, Allison Felix on calling out pregnancy discrimination and how it led to perhaps her greatest victory. I remember I was in my daughter's nursery. She was born two months early. 
And Wes calls me and he is saying that Nike is requesting to use my image in a Women's World Cup campaign. They were asking me to tell women and girls that they could do anything when we're having this like internal battle. That was a moment where I was like, you know, we've got to speak on this. Heart of the game. We'll be right back. Trying to lower your bad cholesterol isn't easy. Kale and spinach. Okay, let's pick up the pace. Remember to take your statin. But today, it's possible to go from struggle to cholesterol success with Lecvio. Proven to lower bad cholesterol with just two doses a year after two initial doses. You've got this. So if you're ready for a change, ask your doctor about adding Lecvio. Prescription Lecvio in glycerin is given by a doctor for people who, along with diet and a statin, need help lowering their bad cholesterol, LDLC. Common side effects were injection site reaction, joint pain, and chest cold. Results may vary. Learn more at Lecvio.com or call 1-833-537-8462. Ask your doctor about twice-yearly Lecvio. That's L-E-Q-V-I-O. And now back to Heart of the Game. We should take a moment to ask about your daughter, who's now (laughs) five, emergency C-section, premature. Is she doing okay? Yeah, she's thriving now, and she's doing so well, and can't even believe the journey that we've come from. But yeah, she's doing great. Thanks for asking. Allison, you gave birth to your daughter in 2018. And the following year, you write an op-ed in the New York Times that challenged Nike, who was your sponsor at the time, over the contract terms. They were reportedly asking you to take a significant pay cut, right? Almost 70% Mm -hmm. of your salary and not guaranteeing that you wouldn't get fired if you didn't live up to their performance marks. Is that right? Did I sum that up pretty well? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Yeah. Were you reluctant at all? to go public with this? I was terrified. I mean, it's just so outside of who I was as an athlete. Like, for the majority of my career, I barely said anything, you know, head down, did the work, stayed in my lane. I was very, I think, scared to have, like, strong opinions on anything and really just, like, fought to fit this, like, perfect image. So this was, like, when my world just, like, turned upside down. So I was really, really scared. Tell me, what was the tipping point for you in this? Where did it hit you in the gut that you said, that's it, I have to speak up? Yeah, it was this very specific moment. I mean, all of this had been going on. The money was the money, and we had really moved off of that. It was asking for the maternal protections, which meant a time period to recover from having birth and to be able to get back to top form, to not receive a reduction, which would be standard in the contract. And so that was the major point. And they had told me that I could have the time, but they weren't willing in the contract to legally tie it to maternity or pregnancy so that it didn't set the precedent for all their female athletes. So that was the point where we weren't landing in the same place. And um, I remember I had been home for a little bit and I was in my daughter's nursery. I had a very traumatic birth experience with her. Um, She was born two months early. She spent a month in the NICU. And I'm in her nursery and Wes calls me and he is saying that, you know, 
Nike is requesting to use my image in a Women's World Cup campaign. And that was like the final thing because we're still at this point, we're still going back and forth, you know, fighting over these maternal protections. Like it's all happening right then. And that final request was just like such a a miss to me. It was like they didn't see what was happening. They were asking me to tell women and girls that they could do anything. And when we're having this like internal battle. So that was a moment where I was like, you know, we've got to speak on this. You felt they were being somewhat duplicitous in this. Yeah, I did. I couldn't put my face out there and stand for that when I felt like we're going through this whole thing kind of behind the curtain. Wes, as manager and brother, I'm guessing you were torn somewhat. Emotionally, you could understand what Allison felt. On the other hand, you got to do what's in the best interest of your client. You have a fiduciary responsibility, in a sense. Were you in favor of Allison speaking out, or did you try and say to her, look, just lay low? I felt there was a real problem in the industry already, and separate from Allison, was on background helping the New York Times reporter connect with different athletes that I thought would be good for her story, um, helping her to understand the landscape of of what was happening in sport and what was wrong with what was going on in sport. And, you know, as she started to see some of what was going on with Allison and her birth experience, she asked me, do you think Allison would be a part of this? And, you know, to Allison's point of not rocking the boat, being really terrified, my immediate response to her was equally the same. I was terrified. I felt very strongly on what the right thing was. So it wasn't hard to know what are you supposed to do here. But you mentioned that fiduciary responsibility. It was, yeah, if we blow this up, for sure, you're not going to be able to go back to Nike. That's not an option. But it might be really hard to go anywhere because a lot of times people don't like the troublemaker. And there's a fear that all you're going to do is come into the next organization and, and cause trouble. As time went on, what started to become a real conversation where I could then say to her, is this something you would consider? And I'm so glad she was willing to do it. In fact, you were right. Nike and Allison, collectively as a team, you parted ways, right? Mm -hmm. But you got Nike to change its policies in the process. Yeah, it was about two and a half weeks after the op-ed came out. They changed their policy, and today they offer 18 months of maternal protections for their female athletes, and um, some other companies came forward as well. So that was all great. You know, it was amazing for all the women who get to benefit. But I was done and out, and I didn't get that. Were you disappointed, or you knew that that was coming, and so it was inevitable? I didn't know it was coming. I was really disappointed in the fact of like, that's exactly what we asked for. You know, it was like, it's only because we went public that anything changed. And so I just, a company of that size, like I always felt like it was doable, you know? So there was just so much resistance. And then when it didn't look so great, then for them to come around, to me, that was the disappointing part. But at the end, I was happy that the policy changed for sure. Both of you talked about the industry, specifically female athletes. But do you see any difference between that instance and what other women have been experiencing in other workplaces for years? In essence, choose your path, choose your course. You want to be a mom? You want to you want to be a wife? Or do you want to work? Yeah. I mean, to me, that was a thing. Like, I wrote the New York Times op-ed and a flood of women came to me. Like, it resonated. They had been through something similar. And 
to me, it's devastating. Like that was 2018, 2019, like that, that many people have been affected. Um, and I guess it shouldn't be shocked by that, but really heartbreaking that, you know, even in the spaces where people are saying the right things, women still know they might get taken off of things or they're still hiding pregnancies. And it's just really unfortunate. We talked about your five consecutive Olympic appearances, 2004, 8, 12, 16. Here comes 20 in Tokyo. And you don't have Nike. Mm -hmm. You've given birth a couple years before. How hard is it both physically and emotionally to say, I want to do this one more time? I want to race in the Olympics in Tokyo. I think it was easy to say that I wanted to. You know, I think I was on fire, especially after parting ways with Nike. I felt like no one believed that I could do it. But then I think after I set out to do it, then I started to like have the doubts myself. Like, okay, well, maybe they are right. I'm a new mother. I don't have the support of Nike. During that time, we were trying to figure out how to do it ourselves. And it was a lot of pressure to be up against. And being 35 and just unsure if it would come together was tough. Can you speak in broad terms? And obviously everybody's story is different. But since you wrote about it in the New York Times, it created this split with Nike. You feel so strongly about it. What is it like to give birth and then try and come back as a world-class athlete? It was so humbling. I think like things I never, ever even thought about, like doing drills or jogging, they were things that I could not do. And so I had this whole plan of I'm going to give birth and I'm going to be back four weeks later and I know how to train hard. I know how to do all those things. But my mind was telling me I could do those things. But after the emergency C-section, after being in the NICU for a month, spending time around the clock there, it just threw off everything. And so it was like starting from not even from the bottom, but from like below that. It was like, it felt like I wasn't even an athlete. Like I, I tried to do simple things and my body wasn't responding. And so that's really when I, I started to question, can I get back to me? Because I didn't feel any parts of myself. Did you feel that other athletes were looking at you at this point in your mid thirties without a sponsor and saying, what are you doing here? Oh, yeah. I felt like everybody was. And I've heard the chatter also. You know, it wasn't just a feeling. It was like they're literally saying it. You know, I'm the oldest. I have a new baby. Like, I'm competing against, like, kids. <laughs> and so I felt very different than everybody else who was out there. I'm assuming there was also some thought in that this is going to be your last Olympics, most likely in 2020 in Tokyo, win or lose and that you're gonna make the transition into a, a new career. Where does the idea come from to create your own company, Seish? Yeah, it really came just in the conversation of me venting to Wes, and it was after that hunt of like, okay, is there anyone out here who will give me shoes to run in the Olympics? And I just felt so disheartened because I felt like, okay, I feel like I have enough of the accomplishments to get a sponsor. and. When we couldn't find it, um, Wes was like, I think we should do this ourselves. And at first I was like, that's too big of a thing. At the time, it was like, you know, the beginning of the pandemic. The Olympics had been postponed a year. There was just so much going on. But then I sat with it and I realized that it was actually a great idea. And it gave us the opportunity to create change. And 
do things our way. And we thought what we were doing was creating shoes that I could just wear in the Olympics and that maybe other women would want to support that too. But as we made the deep dive into just that industry, we learned that shoes, um, they're made off of mold and it's a mold of a man's foot used to make women's sneakers. And that was kind of the turning point for us. It was like, not only are we going to try to do something and create change for me, but we're going to try to push an industry and do something that isn't being done. And then we were off to the races. <laughs> this might seem like a fairly trite question, you know, when somebody asks you, oh, can you pick one moment? Um, but I'm going to take giving birth off the table. Um, <laughs> so you can't use that one on me. But, you know, you go to the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. Everybody's wondering why you're there. You're hearing it. You don't have the sponsor. You're 35 years old. And another, a seventh gold medal to go home on and retire from the Olympics for Allison Felix. And you come out of there with a bronze in the 400, but a gold medal as part of the 400 relay team. Is that the icing on the cake? Is that the I'm done moment? Wave goodbye? Yeah, to me, it was literally crossing the line, like in the Seish spikes that we created was like, it was bigger than the sport. Like for me, for the first time, as someone who's very clear cut about success and failure, that moment was just about so much more than any of that. And so, you know, I did one more year after that and kind of said my thank yous, but that was the highlight looking back of everything. And for Allison Felix, she is the goodbye gold for her, 316.85. Wes, you see that moment in Tokyo, um, drop the tough exterior. Tears? Yeah, I think that there was so much emotion in all of the ways we had just fought so hard and fought a battle that we didn't even know was coming. And there was a conversation Allison and I had two nights before her final where she really opened up and was just telling me that she was scared and she didn't know if she could do it. You know, in our conversation, I'll never forget, was the goal is the same, but it's different. And you're saying you don't think you can do it, but that's because you think there's only one medal. But there isn't only one medal, there are three. And you need to think about shifting what your goal is for the very first time, you know? And I think as a brother and a manager, it was the first time I ever felt safe telling her, you don't have to win. And that's how I knew like, okay, we're at the end, you know, like we're at the end of this part of the journey because gold isn't the goal anymore and it doesn't need to be. That's so beautiful. But that means I think as a brother and sister, We've done something for real in real life. We understand actually what the purpose was, and it was never winning. And so seeing her sitting there on the track, COVID Olympics, so we weren't able to be there, but it's five o'clock in the morning and, you know, we're sitting on my parents' couch and Cameron is sleeping, you know, on her dad's lap and we're waking her up and we're jumping and we're screaming and she's getting happy. And, you know, we just see Allison down there trying to catch her breath the way I've seen her with her hands around her knees probably hundreds of times before, just just exhausted. And seeing her in the shoes, I think also knowing, for me, there was something that I told her that I haven't delivered on yet, but I still will, is I will make sure you are the highest paid female athlete in sports. And what I was able to think about in that moment was, here you are, you're in your own shoes. We made them. 
your company has a 10-figure valuation. That is more money than you would ever have a chance to ever make in your entire career at Nike as a runner. And you're doing it your way, on your terms, for your daughter. And you're showing every other woman that you don't have to just do what you're told. You can actually create something different. And so, yeah, I can't imagine a moment more emotional or where I've, you know, really been more proud of anything else and did on the track. Allison, you've got a future of motherhood in front of you, a successful company, social activism, an advocate for women and female athletes in general, so much to look forward to. But I've never spoken to an athlete who's reached the levels that you have that hasn't had a moment of, oh gosh, it's over. Mm. There's maybe a little bit of depression. It's tough emotionally. It's tough physically. What's been the hardest part stepping away from the track? I think it's definitely working through the sadness of it, the loss of it, that I absolutely loved every single, well, not every single, but I loved running. I love that I got to wake up and train for five hours a day. And that is just a part of who I am. And I think the most challenging part is not like what is my next step or, you know, I feel really grateful and blessed that that's all mapped out. But I think it's waking up and not having that training, not getting to see my coach every day, not not having that very tangible goal um, and working towards it, you know, it's just a very different thing. And so I think no matter where you end at, if it's at the highest of the high, or if you didn't quite do the things that you wanted, I think that part is all the same, the walking away and the missing it. How different is life today without competition like that in terms of eating and just simply exercising every day? Yeah, it's so different. I think the biggest thing I'm like, when do people exercise? Like, I didn't know that this was a thing, like <laughs> either early in the morning or late at night and trying to fit that way. And and also just like trying to find my new relationship with sport. And I think I've been so used to such an intense training schedule. I was at the track a couple months ago when I was doing this insane workout and pushing myself to the limits. And I just kind of had this moment where I paused and I was like, I don't have to be here. Like this, I don't have to do this. And so right now it's just been finding the new things, you know, taking tennis lessons and trying to like dial it back a little bit and um, do new things. What are you guys looking forward to with the shoes? I think we're most proud right now that we just launched the Felix Runner, which is our performance running shoe. And so excited just to see it in the world and get to see women wear it and, and run in it. And our hope is that we continue to grow, that more people know about us, know our origin story. For me, I love when I get to see women wearing the shoes and I connect with them. And they usually have a story about feeling like it's so much bigger than the shoes. It's a movement. It's a sign that they stand for women and with women. I just hope that, you know, we continue to get out there and um, see more of that happening. Let me ask you this as we close, and I would like each of you to just take a minute to think about this, or maybe you, it'll jump to you right off the bat. What does the heart of the game mean to you? To me, it's, it's understanding the real purpose of the game. I think that so many times we think it's about winning, it's about pushing yourself. It's not. It's really about other people. 
I feel so fortunate for us is getting to be around the Olympics and the world championships. The heart of the game is the beauty, the purpose, the essence of why we actually play these games. And it's not to break records. I think it's to inspire. Allison? For me, I think it's very similar, but really why you ever do it. And I think for many of us, it starts out being because you want to win and because you're competitive and you want to be the best. And that was my experience. And then you kind of uncover what's really at the heart of it all. And for me, it was learning about myself and learning about that I'm so much more than just the game. You know, I'm here for a bigger purpose than that. And my experience led me to that. So to me, it's about really uncovering the layers of what's really at the core of it all for you as the person discovering it. And let me just close this way because I wanted to ask you this and and you can tell me. Allison, what does it feel like to run that fast? (laughs) When I have the race that goes pretty well, for me, it actually feels kind of easy. It feels like everything is clicking. It makes sense. It feels natural. I'm not fighting against it. It just kind of feels like time is almost slowing down. That's the best way that I can put it. Her running days may be behind her, but Allison Felix isn't done competing. She continues to push to help female athletes and put them on a level playing field. It's a positively Olympian goal, but her career is proof that Allison Felix knows how to win. On the next episode of Heart of the Game, we'll talk with brothers and former bad boys of tennis, Luke and Murphy Jensen. Murphy shares how his personal demons derailed their career and how he survived a terrifying heart attack. It took 17 minutes for the ambulance to get there. And in that time, he had flatlined four times. What do you say to someone who's been your best friend, your brother, and you're saying goodbye? The only thing that kept popping in my mind is we have this motto that Jensen's never quit. You can lose, you can be tired, but Jensen's never quit. Heart of the Game is a production of Ruby Studio from iHeartMedia. Our show is hosted by me, John Frankel. Our executive producer is Matt Romano. Our EP of post-production is Matt Stillo. Our supervising producer is Nakia Swinton. This show was edited by Sierra Spreen, Our writer and researcher is Mike Avila. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. It's possible to go from struggle to cholesterol success with prescription Lecvio in glycerin. Given by a doctor for people who, along with diet and a statin, need help lowering their bad cholesterol, LDLC. Common side effects were injection site reaction, joint pain, and chest cold. Results may vary. Visit Lecvio.com or call 1-833-537-8462. Ask your doctor about Lecvio. 